you can do even effective faster than light travel, then that automatically gives you a recipe to build a time machine. If you can do something like that, then the wormhole that you're using has to have a certain kind of material, exotic material that you need to keep it open, otherwise these things would collapse. The actual traversal of an object of a person or a spaceship through the black hole itself would work out very smoothly. It wouldn't even be bumpy if you're talking about a large enough black hole. You're listening to Widdishin's podcast, where we take the ultimate sci-fi themes found in books and movies and discuss them with the world's leading scientists, engineers, and experts. This week's podcast is brought to you by our sponsors and preferred retailers, Wordery and The Book Depository. It's based on the novel The Hyperspace Trap by Christopher G. Nuttall, and if you can get past the tragedy, you'll be taken on a journey through wormholes and hyperspace. The link to the hyperspace trap can be found in the show notes, but you'll hear more about the book after the show. My name's Amy Rose, and as the host of Widdishins, this week I bring to you the sci-fi themes, hyperspace, wormholes, portals, black holes, white holes, and a touch of time travel. With our guest this week, Dr. Gara Khanna. It was such a privilege to interview Dr. Kana. He is a professor in the physics department at the University of Massachusetts. He works on a variety of challenging problems. And when I say challenging, most of them I can't even say. And these are in theoretical and computational physics. His primary research project is directly related to the coalescence of binary black hole systems using perturbation theory and the estimation of properties of emitted gravitational waves. So his research is supported by the National Science Foundation, the NSF, MA Space Grant Consortium, NASA, US Air Force Research, the private foundations and the computer industry, Apple, IBM, Sony, NVIDIA and others. So without further ado, let's have a listen to my interview with Dr. Gaurav Khanna. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gaurav Khanna. Thank you so much for coming on Widdishin's podcast. I just want to start with how on earth did you get into all of these topics and did it just spontaneously fall into your lap? Some people just have these amazing lives. Or were you interested in it as a child? So I grew up surrounded with all these physics books around me. And at some point, I started sort of picking them up and browsing through them, and at some point, fairly intensely reading them. And I think I would probably say that I was in uh, right before high school, so maybe eighth grade, maybe seventh, somewhere in that range, that I really found myself drawn to Einstein's own writings. He had a book with Einstein's original papers. They were translated, of course, from German to English. And I found his writings and his thought process and how he explained things and his motivations, this is Einstein, uh, very, very compelling, even at that age. And I made a sort of a strange adolescent goal to, uh, you know, as soon as I could go through all his papers and comprehend them to the best of my ability. And wow. uh, and that was that was in high school. Yeah, so, in high school. And of course. Wow. My background was totally inadequate for that, especially the math background. (laughs) But it became a sort of a goal and it it became a multi-year sort of journey or quest to get there. And, you know, what I would, the process I took was very painful in some ways. So I would start reading 
And then the first equation I would encounter, which happens very quickly in Einstein's papers, <laughs> I would go back to my dad and I would ask him, okay, so this equation, what math do I need to understand this equation? And he would say, oh, you've got to go and learn about matrix theory or linear algebra or something like that. So I would then yeah. have to take a month or maybe like a semester long detour, reading a textbook on some of that, and then get enough understanding, you know, not, not necessarily very deep understanding, but enough to then get past that equation. So uh, years later, I think it may have been my sophomore year in college when I finally was able to get through that manuscript, that paper that I was trying to get through. And interestingly enough, you know, like 30 years later, 30 or so years later, I'm actually a researcher in that same theory, in that same subject. And that's really something I can feel very blessed that, uh, you know, happened in my life, which is not common for most people to have uh, struck that single thread from the beginning from such an early age all the way till um, to where I am now so and where are you now so what what are you passionate about at this moment in time yeah so I'm a researcher in general relativity which is Einstein's theory of gravity and my focus happens to be to really understand gravity well and typically when you're doing that you want to look at places in nature where your interest, in this case gravity, would have a dominant role. That's the, the best way, the best area to study. And so naturally, black holes are an environment which gravity is very dominant. It's like the strongest force in black holes. and All other forces would be really negligible. So I study black holes, largely with the, the perspective of understanding general relativity, understanding gravity. I also try to contribute towards furthering general relativity by worrying about how quantum physics plays a role, uh, which was something which is still incomplete, you know, today. So I contribute to some of that. And also I contribute to this big effort. Maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that a little bit later, which is to the quest to detect gravitational waves, which was very recently, three, four years ago, successful for the first time. So there's a lot of work to be done on the gravitational waves, which is, again, an area that I work on. And that's also related to black holes in, in the end. So, yeah, so multi, I would say several aspects of black hole physics, of gravitation is what I work on today. And with respect to black holes, where some people say, and we're jumping right to hyperspace now because you've brought up the black holes, some people say that the black holes serve as a portal for hyperspace travel. In fact, you said that in an article in this year in January, and I think you said this dense and hot singularity punches a hole in the fabric of space and time itself, possibly opening up an opportunity for hyperspace travel. Can you explain how black holes lead to possible hyperspace travel? And, what, and maybe what even black holes and hyperspace travel are. Right. So black holes are... And good luck. <laughs> yeah, shit. This is going to take a little while, but, you know, help me Yeah, out. okay. <laughs> yes. So black holes by themselves are fairly well-defined terms. These are solutions to Einstein's general relativity theory. You can write them down mathematically. You can worry about their properties in a precise kind of way. And naively, black holes would be defined as these objects that have such intense gravity that even light can't escape their pull. From a general relativistic perspective, their definition is a little bit more rigorous than that. But I think for most purposes, the definition of light being trapped you know, in this region is perhaps a, is a pretty good definition. Another aspect of black holes that are quite critical, certainly with regard to the article you mentioned, is the fact that the gravity inside them 
is so intense that there's no material that can resist the collapse because of gravity, which essentially means that material inside would have to keep collapsing down to a point in essence. And that's referred to as a singularity because you effectively have quite a lot of mass, let's say the mass of a star that died to form this black hole, that's compressed down to zero volume. So physical quantities like density and temperature and pressure, they literally become a mathematical infinity, you know, at this singularity. So it's a very, very strange object. So now the other question you asked was what's hyperspace? So hyperspace refers to pretty much anything that would be beyond our three-dimensional space that we're very familiar with. And often, you know, sort of Consider that in the context of higher dimensions. That's a very common, you know, manifestation or representation of hyperspace. But it doesn't have to be that way, you know. So one could imagine, for example, two points in three-dimensional space connected, you know, in some sort of non-trivial kind of way. Mathematicians sometimes refer to this as a multiply connected space or multiply connected topology, what have you. So you don't necessarily need to have higher dimensions to talk about something like hyperspace travel, but that's the most common way people think about it. So I think I've gotten through the first parts of your questions. (laughs) So was there more there or should I jump into the article that I wrote? I would love to hear about the article that you wrote, please. Okay. So Now, the article was basically about speculating whether one could use black holes as portals for some sort of hyperspace travel for large distances. And, you know, when people think about this carefully, meaning scientifically, I would say that there's multiple different threads of analysis or issues or challenges one can kind of envision. And in my way of thinking, there's at least three different threads or three different ways by which you could think about this problem. So, and I want to clarify that I'm going to ignore a few of those threads, and I'm going to focus on one particular thread. So, for example, uh, one could worry about practical issues. One could basically say, okay, well, even if you have a black hole as a portal available somehow, how do you get to it? You'll need to have some sort of spaceship that can protect you if you travel through it. You may have to worry about uh, life support systems one may need and whether one could build something like that. And of course, the time taken to get to it and so on and so forth. So I consider those practical issues and I don't have expertise on those. I find they're more engineering issues. And I'm going to say that mm-hmm. there, let's assume there's sufficiently smart engineers out there that can figure all that out. It's not an in-principle problem, and those those issues are practical, you know, pragmatic type issues. So we're not going to get into some of that. So that article doesn't really get into those, and I actually personally don't have great interest in those type of issues. What I wanted to ask, though, I mean, I know there's all these engineering issues. Judging by the way that you explained a black hole, doesn't seem very safe for anyone to actually embark on that journey without having a pretty hardcore spaceship. And so in The Hyperspace Trap, which is the book that this podcast is based on, uh, hyperspace and hyperspace travel, they find like a, a graveyard that's full of spaceships that are able to go through hyperspace. The alien graveyard unfolded itself before them as they pressed onwards. A jumbled mass of starships, ranging from simple designs close to humanity's work to designs that made very little sense at all. One looked like a squash spider, another a giant teardrop, a third, largest of all, favored a bird in flight. They were all covered in sickly green light, making it hard to study the craft closely. 
He'd seen hundreds of fictional designs in dozens of movies, but something about the alien ships defied him to say that they were human. The people who designed the vessels had different ideas about how the universe worked. But if we could get all the engineering in place, does the science add up to allow this to happen, to, to travel through hyperspace? I think the short answer to specifically the question you asked is yes, in the sense that for, and this is something which the article specifically addresses that I'm happy to talk about in detail, is that if you have a large enough black hole and if it's spinning fast enough, then you can show that these forces that people worry about on spaceships or objects falling in can be made negligibly small. So in fact, the engineering at least going through the black hole or crossing the horizon and, and beyond would not be the hard part. The engineering that would be required to get to a black hole in the first place, those challenges, of course, stay. But the actual traversal of an object of a person or a spaceship through the black hole itself would work out very smoothly. It wouldn't even be bumpy if you're talking about a large enough black hole. And by large enough, I'm really referring to the supermassive black holes that most galaxies appear to have at the center, uh, like our galaxy does, Sagittarius A, for example, that th those black holes exist. These are not hypothetical black holes I'm talking about. And if we went through the black hole, where would we end up? Yeah, so that's the part that I think where it gets interesting. So as I was saying earlier, that you know, there's three different types of issues. So one issue is this practical issue, which for now I'm setting aside. Then there are these fundamental issues, which is kind of what I'm more focused on, it, which essentially is the answer to your question, or at least in the context of your question. So by fundamental issues, I mean the current knowledge we have about black holes and the singularities they're in and their interior structure and the forces they exert. Could one even in principle, other than the engineering issues, survive if they if one crosses or passes through them? So the main thing that people worry about when it comes to a traversal through a black hole is this singularity. As I said, there's this thing inside that is incredibly hot, incredibly dense, literally infinitely hot, infinitely dense, and has very high, infinite, infinitely high pressure. So how does one survive the effect of this singularity upon you know, anything you know, uh, that's falling through, that's going through? So the main thing that we're able to show in this research that was done last year, which the article is based on, is that actually there is a way to save oneself or save a spaceship. And the way we kind of do it is that there's a way by which you can avoid the worst kinds. There's several kinds of singularities inside a rotating black holes. So as long as your black hole is rotating, you've got different kinds of singularities. And there's some that you can avoid. And there are others that are called weak singularities, which you can't avoid. You have to go through them. But these weak singularities, as long as they are, as I said, you know, the black hole is large enough and spinning fast enough, you can actually pass through them without them affecting you very much, if at all, you know. So there's some optimistic answer there, you know, at least the, the primary objection people have to travel through a black hole, I think is not quite, you know, as negative an experience as one would perhaps imagine, singularity business. We mentioned other dimensions earlier, and I'm just wondering, is that a possibility of what's at the other side? I mean, if you travel through and you get through all the all the hurdles, do you think that there's another dimension or another universe or... Or do you just go through a hole and come back out 
out the other side. What do you theorize as being a possibility? Yeah, excellent. So this is that third uh, thread that I was referring to here. So the fundamental issues, as I talked about, these are relevant to what we currently know. So, you know, we understand the singularity structure of black holes enough for me to be able to confidently say what I what I just said about weak singularities and such. But then there are these unknown issues. And these unknown issues come from the fact that we still don't have everything figured out in the sense that we don't quite fully understand or have a complete picture of a black hole and a black hole interior in particular, especially the singularity. The reason we don't know a complete picture in part is exactly as you know you pointed out, which is that there are these quantum phenomena which we don't have a theory for even to date. And one speculation, I, I don't want to even call them theory, so one speculation may be something, you know, like perhaps you are able to uh, travel to a a different dimension. Certainly, it's an idea that has come up in the context, the higher dimension idea has come up in the context of the string theory, which is still being worked upon theory for quantum theory of gravity. But there are other ideas too. So in fact, I'm very fond of another alternative to quantum gravity, which is still um, in the works. It's called loop quantum gravity, sometimes also called quantum geometry. And that appears to say, at least in the limited models that have uh, been calculated upon that one passes through a black hole like this and emerges out of a white hole on the other side. And by white hole, one is referring to sort of a time reversal of a black hole solution in essence. So, and- Sorry, sorry, can we, can I just pause there for a second? A white hole. Yeah. You just touched on it, but in layman's term, could we just have just a quick overview of, of what that is? Yeah. So a white hole, you know, by definition is just the time reversal of a black hole. So it kind of means that whatever you know about black holes, just reverse them in time. So in effect, what this means is that these things would not be able to swallow stuff. They can only spew out stuff. Nothing can get in, only everything can just get out. Other than that, they have very similar structure, meaning they, they also have a very strong gravity. They have a singularity at their center. So those type of things stay in common. But one could just essentially, as I said, just think of running time backwards if you envision a phenomenon going on with regard to black holes, run time backwards, and that would be the, a white hole in essence. And, and the theory, the relativity theory, yeah, sure. The re relativity theory doesn't really forbids you from having a white hole. It basically says, okay, if you have a black hole solution that's possible, then reversing time would also give you another solution. So you certainly have the possibility of a white hole solution. So there's some indication that one may be able to, uh, if one crosses into a black hole and avoids the singularity and all that, you may emerge out of a white hole, uh, which is like a partner to this black hole. Okay, so that's one option. What are the other options of coming out at the other side? What are the other ideas, I guess? So one speculation that I'm very fond of as well, which was, uh, I think, traces back to a number of different people, but perhaps Lee Smolin, who was one of my mentors, may have popularized it in a book that she wrote uh, in the 90s called Life of the Cosmos, in which she talks about the fact that consider something going into a black hole and, you know, if that is going to ultimately emerge somewhere, it would seem like it's emerging from a very dense singularity. And that is pretty much how we think of the Big Bang itself. 
So the Big Bang is typically envisioned in a naive way as a, as a sort of a singularity, a small object that sort of blew up and gave birth to our universe as we know today. So that pretty much sounds like you know the time reversal of a black hole, if you will. If that's the case, that could it be that our Big Bang, our creation of our universe, really comes from the formation of a black hole in a parent universe? So that anytime a black hole is formed, it effectively gives birth to a baby universe of some sort. And we happen to be in such a baby universe of a parent black hole. So, and that's a very interesting idea as well, because it actually can explain a number of issues. Uh, in, in fact, in this book, Life of the Cosmos, Smolin uh, develops a whole theory around this idea and tries to argue that the laws of physics, the way they are, uh, he builds an argument, a meta principle for why laws of physics are the way they are, and tries to answer some very difficult, very difficult, deep questions on that. So that's one of my favorite speculative ideas as well. You might have that sneaky suspicion that we've cut a fair bit out of this episode, and your intuition is on point. But that's because we can't fit everything in. And you also might have a sneaky suspicion that we've done other interviews that are a little bit crazier. So if you want access to all the uncut episodes and the interviews that we decided to make private, head to www.wittishinspodcast.com forward slash members only and you might just find your tribe. Okay, I'll let you get back to the episode now. Some people say that you could go through and come out into another dimension similar to our own, uh, which is, that's very sci-fi. And some people say you might be able to go further in time or back in time. And others say you might just come out in another universe. Yes. Are any of these conversations within with your peers or your colleagues? I would say that these are not, while certainly they're not considered mainstream research in quantum gravity or in black hole physics or in relativity theories. But needless to say, I have to say that there are ideas from these that have led to interesting speculations uh, about problems we don't understand. So there's issues with, for example, entropy in the universe. There are issues with how to understand quantum mechanics. Uh, people, your view, your audience may have heard of this mini worlds interpretation and the multiverse and all these type of ideas. And some of them, you know, do have good theoretical reasoning behind them or a reason to, to consider them or developing them further. Others are just fun speculation. So my viewpoint on these is that people should absolutely spend some time thinking about these things and pushing these ideas. And I'm referring to researchers and sci-fi writers and lay people. They're fun, first of all, but they can also be very productive. Some, some, some very interesting ideas can emerge, which can help push an idea forward, which may result in some cool physics ultimately being uncovered. Another thought, and I, we mentioned it briefly, <laughs> Do you think we need to master faster than light travel in order to make interstellar travel a reality? This might even not be your field, but I've struggled to find people to talk about faster than light travel. And I'm just wondering if that's something, because we need to get to a black hole, you see, and that's not really possible with what we have at the moment. That's just my, maybe it is possible, but soon. But is that something that we need to master, do you think? Yeah. So I think there's, it's hard to imagine 
what else one could do about dealing with these vast expanses of space and large distances. So in order for one to sort of practically move across the cosmos, one really would have to have some some effective faster than light travel. So the only change I'm making to the words you use is some effective faster than light travel. But you you could consider achieving effectively faster than light travel. And what I mean by that is, for example, using wormholes. That's a very kind of common way people talk about, and even in the scientific world, of how to consider cutting across, taking a shortcut through space and reaching to another part of the universe. You know, this most recently was shown pretty much in detail in the movie Interstellar, for example, in which they use a wormhole to go to a distant galaxy. So it's a common thing, and I think that would be the closest general relativity theory would support this idea of effective faster-than-light travel. Having said that, you know, one has to be aware that it does come with a lot of baggage. If you can do even effective faster-than-light travel, then that automatically gives you a recipe to build a time machine and can also have other problems. Uh, like If you can do something like that, then the wormhole that you're using has to have a certain kind of material, this exotic material that you need to keep it open, otherwise these things would collapse. So there's a number of issues that FDL brings uh, with it. In my view, I think perhaps the most difficult one is uh, that effectively you get a time machine. And that's a very tough one to wrap your head around. Uh, Oh, I love thinking about time machines. It's one of my my favorites. And I know that faster than light travel is as soon as it is mastered, we are going to have a few ethical problems to deal with, particularly (laughs) with time travel. Do you think time travel is going to exist? What's your opinion? Ah. So that's a very tough one. (laughs) Are you even brave enough to say you might have to cut this out just so that you don't sound crazy to your peers? (laughs) Well, (laughs) if one takes a minute and thinks about what are the main issues or objections to time travel, of course, the ones that people commonly talk about are this grandfather paradox. And there are these paradoxes that come whenever you have this issue with time travel. So first of all, I should clarify one thing in time travel. I have worked on a little bit of this a few years ago too, which is notice that time travel in the future is a trivial matter. You know, that that's we do that all the time and you know we can get into details if you want. But traveling into the future is a pretty trivial thing. It, it happens all the time. So it's not a problem. The main issues, all the issues in fact, the paradoxes and stuff, come when you time travel into the past. That's the part that's tricky. And that's the one when the grandfather paradox plays a role and, and some couple other paradoxes. But I should say that there are people who have given this some thought. So Stephen Hawking was one of them. Certainly Kip Thorne has done a lot of work on time travel back in the 80s, 90s. And uh, I'm not sure if your audience will be familiar with this thing called the Novikov Consistency Principle, which basically says that you're allowed to time travel into the past and it's a principle really to make sure there's no contradictions or no paradoxes come. You're allowed to time travel in the past, but if there is an event or if there is some action you try to take or you can take that would change or alter history, that would alter sort of the meaning the future from that point on, which ultimately means the history of, of things, then that's forbidden. That would be stopped somehow. But the claim is that something would intervene and make you stop from doing so. And history would always stay consistent. It would never, you know, kind of end up in a situation like the Back to the Future movies in which 
you know, the Michael J. Fox and the siblings begin to get erased slowly. So, so that kind of contradiction would never happen. But you may be able to travel into the past and somehow be forbidden to do these things. I do have one last question to ask you. This is a question that I am going to be asking all of our, our guests. If we were to travel forward in time, what technology do you think is going to exist that, that we can't imagine right now? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a hard question. It's actually a very interesting one to think about. So let me answer it in two parts. So you say technology, but let me interpret that just for a moment as maybe even a scientific concept or an idea, and then I can also get into the technology bit if you wish. So from a scientific perspective, I think that it's going to be whatever this quantum gravity theory that, you know, this is something which interstellars refer to as the professor's equation, uh, whenever we uncover this in the future, is going to really have lots of surprises for us and lots of possibly shocking, makes may expose us to some shocking things about the universe or about nature. Uh, for example, we may learn that space-time isn't really a continuum. It has some kind of a really, you know, sort of a discrete structure at a very fundamental level and time doesn't flow smoothly, it takes jumps. And so we may learn some really intriguing things about the universe. And maybe that may not necessarily get you know, lay people as shocked, but it certainly would be very shocking to physicists to learn about things like that. But on a technology front, you know, I guess I've thought through this a few times, and it's really motivates me to want me to live longer, is that, yeah, is perhaps the fusion of human beings and machines. I think that I'm very intrigued by that. And I think there's going to be a lot more of that than perhaps people think, because Right now, you know, even to date in media and stuff, things like robots and computers are always as an us versus them scenario. And I think the future is going to be very different in which, you know, robots and humans and AI and all these things are going to kind of be assistive technologies to us. They'll be part of us. They'll be inside us. They'll be outside us. And there'll be some sort of very nice synergistic and, you know, existence that we would have with these things. And there wouldn't be an us versus them mentality as currently has for many decades has been popularly and commonly discussed. Thank you so much for coming on Widdishin's podcast, Gaurav. I really appreciate it. And it's been amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. 